Now, listen at this. This man, Frank, says, I sat in my office, checking over the amount of money which had been left over. Not the cash. Not cash. But the amount of money which had been left over. From the payroll. From the $1,100 that they had drawn Friday, and to this day, we don't know how much was left over, and we don't know whether what was left over, coupled with the cash left on hand, would make this bundle of bills that old Jim says was shown to him and taken back. When Frank wanted to get him to go down into the dark cellar and burn that body by himself. And old Jim says, I'll go if you go, but if I go down there and burn that body, somebody might come along and catch me, and then what kind of a fix will I be in? And I'll tell you right now, if Jim Conley had gone down in that cellar and had undertaken to have burned that body, as sure as the smoke would have curled upward out of that funnel towards heaven, just so certain would Leo M. Frank have been down there with these same detectives, and Jim Conley would have been without a shadow of a defense. But old Jim, drunk or sober, ignorant or smart, vile or pure, had too much sense. And while he was willing to write the notes to be put by the dead body, and was willing to help this man take the body from the second floor, where the blood was found, into the basement, and keep his mouth shut, and to protect him, until the combined efforts of Scott and Black and Starnes and all these detectives beat him down, and made him admit a little now and a little then, he wasn't willing, and he had too much sense, to go down into that basement to do that dirty job by himself, and cremate the remains of this little girl, that that man, in his passionate lust, had put to death. You don't show that he didn't have the money. And the truth of the business is, I expect, that out of that $1,100 for the payroll, and $30 in cash which you had, if the truth were known, you offered old Jim Conley and bought him with that $200 just as surely as Judas Iscariot implanted the kiss for the 30 shekels. He says that no one came into my office who asked for a pay envelope or for the pay envelope of another. This running mate and friend of the dead girl tells you under oath that she went there on Friday evening when they were paid, with the knowledge that little Mary wasn't there, and as she had done on previous occasions, sought to get the money to take to her. And I'll show you, when I get to the state's case later on, that this diabolical plot, of which you have made so much fun, is founded in reason and really did exist, and that this man really, goaded on by passion, had been expecting some time before to ultimately not murder this little girl, but cause her to yield to his blandishments and to flower her without her resistance. Let me do it right now. Way back yonder in March, as far back as March, little Willie Turner, an ignorant country boy, saw Frank trying to force his attentions on this little girl in the metal room. He is unimpeached. He is unimpeachable. She backed off and told him she must go to her work. And Frank said, I am superintendent of this factory. 
a species of coercion. And I want to talk to you. You tell me that that little girl that worked up there and upon the same floor with you in the metal department, and you had passed right by her machine, this pretty, attractive little girl, 12 months, and a man of your brilliant parts didn't even know her. And you tell me that you had made up the payroll with Schiff 52 times during the year, that Mary Fagan was there, and still, you didn't know her name or number? You tell me that this little country boy who comes from Oak Grove, near Sandy Springs, in the northern part of this county, was lying when he got on that stand? I'll tell you no. Do you tell me that little Dewey Hewell, a little girl now from the home of the Good Shepherd in Cincinnati, who used to work at the National Pencil Company, who probably has lost her virtue, though she is of such tender years, was lying when she tells you that she heard him talking to her frequently? Talked to Mary frequently, placed his hands on her shoulder, and called her Mary? You tell me that that long-legged man, Gant, the man you tried to direct suspicion towards, the man Schiff was so anxious to have arrested that he accompanied the police, that you said in your telegram to your uncle, had the case in hand and would eventually solve the mystery. Do you tell me that Gant has lied when he tells you that this man, Frank, noticed that he knew little Mary and said to him, I see that you know Mary pretty well. I am prepared to believe knowing this man's character as shown by this evidence, that way back yonder in March, old passion had seized him. Yesterday, Mr. Rosser quoted from Burns and said it's human to err. And I quote you from the same poem in which old Burns says that there's no telling what a man will do when he has the lassie. When convenience snug, and he has a treacherous, passionate inclination. There's no telling what he will do when he's normal. There's no telling what he will do when he's like other men. But oh, gentlemen, there's no telling what a pervert will do when he's goaded on by the unusual, extraordinary passion that goaded on this man, Leo M. Frank, when he saw his opportunity with this little girl in that pencil factory when she went back to find out if the metal had come. You tell me that all of these people have lied. Willie Turner has lied. Dewey Houle has lied. That Gant has lied. That Miss Ruth Robinson has lied. And even Frank, in his statement, admits that he knew Mary well enough to know that Gant was familiar with her because Chief Detective Harry Scott was told on Monday, April 28th that this man, Gant, was familiar with little Mary. And yet you expect an honest jury of 12 men. Although out of your own mouth you told these detectives, whom you wired your uncle would eventually solve the problem, you told them that this man, Gant, was so familiar with her that you directed suspicion towards him. How did you know it if you didn't know little Mary? And in addition, as I have stated, you tell me that this brilliant man had helped to make out the payroll 
for fifty-two times and seen little Mary's name there, and he didn't even know her name and had to go and get his book to tell whether she worked there or not? And I wouldn't be at all surprised, gentlemen of the jury. It's your man Frank's own statement. That shortages occurred in the cash even after this man Gant left. I wouldn't be at all surprised if the truth of the business is that this man coveted that little girl away back yonder in March. I wouldn't be at all surprised, gentlemen, and, indeed, I submit that it's the truth, that every one of these girls has told the truth when they swore to you on the stand that back yonder in March, after this little girl had come down to work on the office floor in the metal department, that they observed this man, Leo M. Frank, making advances towards her and using his position as superintendent to force her to talk with him. I wouldn't be at all surprised if he didn't hang around. I wouldn't be at all surprised if he didn't try to get little Mary to yield. I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't look upon this man, Gant, who was raised on an adjoining farm in Cobb County, as an obstacle to the accomplishment of the evil purpose which he had in hand. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if, instead of discharging Gant for a $1 shortage, which Gant says, I'll give up my job rather than pay, that you put him out of that factory because you thought he stood in the way of the consummation of your diabolical and evil plans. And you say that you and Schiff made up the payroll Friday. And I wouldn't be at all surprised that, after little Mary had gone, and while you and Schiff were making up the payroll Friday afternoon, you saw little Mary's name, and you knew that she hadn't been notified to come there and get her money Friday afternoon at 6 o'clock. And then, as early as 3 o'clock, yes, as early as 3, knowing that this little girl would probably come there Saturday at 12, at the usual hour, to get her pay, you went up and arranged with this man, Jim Conley, to look out for you. This man, Jim Conley, who had looked out for you on other occasions, who had locked the door and unlocked it while you carried on your immoral practices in that factory. Yes, at three o'clock, when you and Schiff were so busy working on the payroll, I dare say you went up there and told Jim that you wanted him to come back Saturday, but you didn't want Darley to know that he was there. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if it were not true that this little Helen Ferguson, the friend of Mary Fagan, who had often gotten Mary's pay envelope before, when she went in, and asked you to let her have that pay envelope, if you didn't refuse because you had already arranged with Jim to be there, and you expected to make the final onslaught on this girl, in order to deflower and ruin her, and make her, this poor little factory girl, subservient to your purposes. Ah, gentlemen... Then Saturday comes. Saturday comes. And it's a reasonable tale that old Jim tells you. And old Jim says, I done it. Not, I did it. But, I done it. Just exactly like this brilliant factory superintendent told him. There's your plot. I'll tell you, you know this thing passion is like fraud. It's subtle. It moves in mysterious ways. 
People don't know what lurks in the mind of a libertine, or how anxious they are, or how far ahead they look. And it isn't at all improbable. Indeed, I submit to you as honest men seeking to get at the truth, that this man, whose character was put in issue and torn down, who refused to go into specific instances on cross-examination, if he didn't contemplate this little girl's ruin and damnation, it was because he was infatuated with her and didn't have the power to control that ungovernable passion. There's your plot. And it fits right in and jams right up, and you can twist and turn and wobble as much as you want to, but out of your own mouth, when you told your detective, Scott, that this man Gant was familiar with that little girl, notwithstanding, at other places in this statement, you tried to lead this jury of honest men to believe you didn't know her. I tell you that he did know her. And you know that he knew her. What are you going to believe? Has this little Ferguson girl lied? Is this little factory girl a harebrained fanatic, suborned to come up here and perjure herself by John Starnes or Black or Campbell or any of the detectives? Do you tell me that such a thing can be done when the state of Georgia, under the law, hasn't a nickel that this girl could get? I tell you, gentlemen, you know that's a charge that can't stand one instant. Now, he says right here in his statement that he kept the key to his cash box right there in his desk. Well, he makes a very beautiful statement about these slips. But I'll pass that and come to that later. He explains why they were put on there April 28th, and so forth. Now, here's the first reference that he makes to chatting. I stopped that work that I was doing that day and went to the outer office and chatted with Mr. Darley and Mr. Campbell. I should figure about 9.15 or a quarter to nine, Miss Maddie Smith came in and asked for her pay envelope. Jim is corroborated there. He identified Miss Maddie Smith and told with particularity what she did. He says, I kept my cash box in the lower drawer of the left-hand side of my desk. Jim says that's where he got some cash. This man also shows he took a drink at Crookshank's soda fount, and two or three times during this statement, he showed that he was doing at the soda fount exactly as Jim says he was doing as they came on back from the factory. Again, he says, But I know there were several of them, and I went on chatting with Mr. Montag. I told you I was going to read you this, and I just wanted you to know we were going to have this out with you. Another thing, he says, I moved the papers I brought back from Montag's in the folder. Old Jim says he had the folder and put the folder away. I would look and see how far along the reports were which I used in getting my financial statement up every Saturday afternoon. And, to my surprise, I found the sheet which contains the record of pencils packed for the week didn't include the report for Thursday, the day the fiscal week ended. That's the only part of the data that Schiff hadn't got up. A short time after they left my office, two gentlemen came in, 
one of them Mr. Graham. Mr. Graham says that he talked to this Negro downstairs. The Negro told him the way to the office, and they tried to get around it on the idea there's some difference in color. Well, being in jail, gentlemen, changes the complexion of anybody. That man was there, Graham says, Tillander says, and he was there for what purpose? By whose request? And he wasn't drunk, either. And then he says, I gave the required pay envelope to the two fathers. This man, Frank, says, I gave the pay envelope and chatted with them at some length. Mr. Arnold says these darkies pick up the language and manners of the men by whom they are employed. I tell you that, if Frank didn't come in contact with the people that worked in that factory more than he would lead you to believe, old Jim Conley never had the opportunity to pick up words that he uses. And yet, here old Jim says, and even in his statement, even in his statement, this man uses the very language that Jim puts in his mouth. I just picked out four of them in a very few pages. I don't know how many others there are. Miss Hall finished her work and started to leave when the 12 o'clock whistle blew. Whistle blowing on a holiday? Well, maybe it did. I'll leave that for you to say. Another place, he says, I chatted with them. Entering, I found quite a number of people, among them Darley, etc., I chatted with them a few minutes. Using the same words Jim said he used with reference to this girl. Miss Hall left my office on her way home. There were, in the building at the time, Arthur White and Harry Denham and Arthur White's wife on the top floor. To the best of my knowledge, it must have been 10 or 15 minutes after Miss Hall left my office when this little girl whom I afterwards found to be Mary Fagan, entered my office and asked for her pay envelope. This little girl whom I afterwards found. Why didn't you give her her money? No, he didn't give her her money. He knew her, all right. That child never got her money. She never got her money, and this man, Frank, when Mrs. White came down there at 1235, and when he jumped, and when Jim Conley was still sitting downstairs. The one fact in this case that must make you see that Jim Conley didn't do the deed. This man Frank was at that safe then, when he jumped and Mrs. White came up, getting out the pay envelope of this little girl, who had gone back to the rear to see whether the metal had come or not, not to make water, as he stated in that note. At the time Frank was at that safe, and Mrs. White came in, she says he jumped. Remember that. As she went down the stairs at 12.35, she saw Jim Conley, or a Negro who resembled him, and that's the one incident in this case that shows that old Jim Conley didn't do the deed. Then it was, after this man had tipped up and tipped back, 
Then it was, he had to let Mrs. White go up. Previously, he had sent up and had them to come down. But this time, he lets Mrs. White go up, and then, after Mrs. White had been up there a little while, and in order not to get caught in the act of moving that body, because he knew Mrs. White might come down, he knew that these men had their lunches and would work and stay up on that floor. At 12.50, Mrs. White says when she went down, she saw Conley there at 12.50, and Frank was anxious to get Mrs. White out of the building, in order that he might call Jim Conley, if Jim had seen, and his saying that he had seen would have given him away. Then it was that he wanted to get her out of the building, and he sent her upstairs and then went upstairs to get her out and pretended to be in a big hurry to get out. But according to her evidence, instead of going out, he didn't have on his coat and went back in his office and sat down at his desk. Anxious to get out. Going to close up right now. Now, that wasn't the purpose. Talk about no blood being found back down there. Talk about no blood being found. Well, there's two reasons why there wasn't any found. This lick the girl got on the back of the head down there wasn't sufficient to have caused any great amount of blood. And if old Jim Conley hadn't dropped that girl as he went by the dressing room, and the thing hadn't gone out like a sunburst all around there, like these men describe it, there wouldn't have been any blood. When you assaulted her and you hit her and she fell and she was unconscious, you gagged her with that. And then quickly you tipped up to the front, where you knew there was a cord. And you got the cord, and in order to save this reputation, which you had among the members of the Benet Brith, in order to save, not your character because you never had it, but in order to save the reputation with the Hasses and the Montagues and the members of Dr. Marx's church and the members of the Benet Brith and your kinfolks in Brooklyn, rich and poor, and in Athens, then it was that you got the cord and fixed the little girl whom you had assaulted, who wouldn't yield to your proposals. To save your reputation, because dead people tell no tales. Dead people can't talk. And you talk about George Kenley saying that he would be one to lead a riot. And you talk about your ability to run George Kenley with a fan or a corn shuck. I tell you, Frank knew. And you know that there would have been men who would have sprung up in this town. Had that little girl lived to tell the tale of that brutal assault. That would have run over 10,000 men like you, would have stormed the jail or done anything. It ought to be because that thing ought to be left to be threshed out before an upright court and an honest jury. But this man Frank knew. He didn't expect her to turn him down. He paved the way. He had set the snare, and he thought that this poor little girl would yield to his importunities. But, ah, uh, thank God, she was made of that kind of stuff to which you are a stranger. And she resisted. She wouldn't yield. You couldn't control your passion, and you struck her and you ravished her. She was unconscious. You gagged her and you choked her. Then you got Mrs. White out, the woman that saw you jump at 12.35 when you were there fixing to see about little Mary's pay envelope, which you never did give the poor child. And you fussed a good deal about that pocketbook, that mesh bag. I wouldn't be at all surprised if old Jim's statement that Frank had that mesh bag 
didn't keep that mesh bag from turning up in this trial, just exactly like that plant of old Newt Lee's shirt, and just exactly like that club, and just exactly like these spots these men found on May 15th around that scuttle hole. It worried you too much. It worried you too much. It disconcerted your plans. The thing had already been done when Mrs. White got back there at 12.35, and old Jim Conley was still sitting down there waiting patiently for the signal that had been agreed upon, waiting patiently for the signals that you had used when some other women from the fourth floor and other people had been down there to meet you Saturdays and holidays. And the first thing he did, after he had gagged her with a piece of her underskirt, torn from her own underskirt, was to tip up to the front, where he knew the cords hung, and come back down there and choke that poor little child to death. You tell me that she wasn't ravished? I ask you to look at the blood. You tell me that that little girl wasn't ravished. I ask you to look at the drawers that were torn. I ask you to look at the blood on the drawers. I ask you to look at the thing that held up the stockings. And I say that as sure as you are born, that man is not like other men. He saw this girl, he coveted her. Others without her stamina and her character had yielded to his lust. But she denied him. And when she did, not being like other men, he struck her, he gagged her, he choked her. And then able counsel go through the farce of showing that he had no marks on his person. Durant didn't have any marks on his person either. He didn't give her time to put marks on his person, but in his shirt sleeves, goaded on by an uncontrollable passion, this little girl gave up her life in defense of that which is dearer than life. And you know it. Why, this man says he had an impression of a female voice saying something. How unjust! This little girl had evidently Listen at that, gentlemen. This little girl whose name had appeared on the payroll had evidently worked in the metal department. And never was such a farce enacted in the courthouse as this effort on the part of able counsel to make it appear that that wasn't blood up there on that floor. Absurd. Not satisfied with the absurdity of the contention that it's paint, that it's cat blood, rat's blood, varnish. They bring in this fellow Lee, who perjures himself to say that that man stood there just letting the blood drip. Old man Stars tells you that they saw the blood there and chipped it up, and saw the blood right along on the route towards the elevator. Jim Conley tells you that right there is where he dropped the head so hard, and where Frank came and took hold and caught the feet. Every person that described that blood and its appearance bears it out that it was caused by dropping, because it was spattered. One big spot here, and other little ones around it. And if human testimony is to be believed, you know that was blood. That that was blood and not paint. You know that it was the blood of Mary Fagan, and not the blood of Duffy. Duffy says so. You know that it was the blood of Mary Fagan, because it corresponds with the manner in which Jim Conley says he dropped the body. You know it's blood because Chief Beavers saw blood there. It spattered towards the dressing room. 
You know it was blood, because Starn says he saw it was blood, and he saw that the Haskellene had been put over it. And I'm going to read you this man's statement, too. Unless I give it out physically, about this Haskellene, it's the purest subterfuge that ever a man sought to palm off on an honest jury. Starnes tells you, I found more blood 50 feet nearer the elevator on a nail. Barrett. Christopher Columbus Barrett, if you will, that discovered the hair that was identified, I believe, by Magnolia Kennedy, Monday morning, as soon as they began work, before anybody ever had had time to write a reward, Barrett, who was not caught in a single lie, Barrett, who, though he works for the National Pencil Company, had the manhood to stand up. I trust him, and put him up against this man, Holloway, who says that Jim Conley was his nigger. This man, Holloway, who made a statement to me in my office, when he didn't see the purpose and the import and the force of the suggestion that this elevator key, after the elevator box was locked, was always put in Frank's office, but when it became apparent that too many people saw this man Frank Sunday morning go there and turn the lever in the power box without going to his office to get the key, then it was that this man Holloway, who we put up and for whose veracity we vouched and who betrayed us and entrapped us, after he saw the force of the suggestion, after he had told us that always, without exception, he had locked this elevator box himself and put the key in Frank's office, throws us down, and by his own affidavit as read in your presence here, made at a time when he didn't see the importance of the proposition, changed his evidence, and perjured himself, either to have this jury acquit this guilty defendant, his boss and employer, or to get the reward for the conviction of his nigger, Jim Conley. Contrast him with Barrett. Barrett the man who discovered the hair on his machine early in the morning and whose attention was called to this blood there by the dressing room at a time when no reward is shown to have been offered and indeed when you know that no reward was offered because no executive of this state or of this city offered any reward during Sunday or as early as 7 or 8 o'clock Monday morning. I say to you that this man Barrett stands an oasis in a mighty desert standing up for truth and right and telling it, though his own job is at stake, and you know it. And you may fling your charges of perjury just as far as you want to, but I tell you right now, gentlemen, that Barrett, when he swore that he found blood there at the place where Conley said he dropped the body, told the truth. And when he said he found that hair on that machine, I tell you Barrett told the truth. And if there be a man in this town that rightly deserves and who ought to receive the rewards if there are any, it's this poor employee of the National Pencil Company who had the manhood and the courage to tell the truth. And I hope if there be such a thing as a reward to be given to anybody, that this man Barrett gets it. But not a single thing did Barrett swear that either didn't occur before any rewards were offered or that weren't substantiated by four and five of the most reputable witnesses that could be found. And Barrett didn't make his discoveries May 15th, either. Barrett made them Monday morning, April 28th, and they haven't any resemblance to a plant. 
They come so clean and so natural that the most warped and the most biased must recognize the fact that Barrett has told the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. But you could wipe Barrett out of this case, and still you have got an abundance of firm ground upon which to stand. Barrett isn't shown to have lied, dodged, or equivocated. Mrs. Jefferson. And I'm only going to give you a few of the people that saw blood there. Mrs. Jefferson saw a dark red spot about as large as a fan. And in her opinion, it was blood. And it was blood. Mel Stanford says he saw the blood at the dressing room Monday, dark spots that looked exactly like blood, and this white stuff, haskeline, had been smeared over it. It was not there Friday, I know, said Mel Stanford, because I swept the floor Friday at that place. The white substance appeared to have been swept over with a coarse broom. We have such a broom, but the one used by me Friday in sweeping over that identical spot was of finer straw. The spots were dry, and the dark led right up here within five feet of where the smear was. Blood and Haskeline. Jim Conley saw her go up and didn't see her go down. Necessary. Absolutely necessary that this man should put her where he said in his telegram or letter the body was found. The discovery made Monday by Barrett and Jefferson and Mel Stanford and seen by Beavers and Starnes, but not only that, but reinforced by Darley. For Darley says, I saw what appeared to be blood spots at the dressing room. A white substance had been smeared over it, as if to hide it. And Quinn says, the spots I saw at or near the dressing room looked like blood to me. Sometimes you have got to go into the enemy's camp to get ammunition. It's a mighty dangerous proposition. Dr. Connolly knows what a dangerous proposition it is to go into the enemy's camp to get ammunition. He has been an old soldier, and he will tell you that there is no more dangerous proposition. I expect Mr. Mangum knows something about it, this going into the enemy's camp to get ammunition. And yet, in this case, conscious of the fact that we were right, having Darley tied up with an affidavit, we dared to go right into the enemy's camp, and there we got the best evidence of the fact that Frank was more nervous than he had ever been known to be, except on two occasions. One, when he had seen a little child killed, and the other, when he and his boss had had a falling out. This man, Montag, who was so afraid something was going to be twisted in this case. And also, Darley saw the blood. It was a mighty hard pill for Darley. It was an awful hard situation for him. But we drove it up to him, and he dared not go back on the affidavit which he had signed, though he did modify his statements. All right. I'm not going to call over all these other people. Mrs. Small and others though Mrs. Carson denied it, she went there, who claimed to have seen that blood. But to cap it all, Mel Stanford says, I swept the floor. He's an employee, and he's an honest man. It wasn't there Friday. Why? Because old Jim, when he went to move that body, 
put it there Saturday. To cap it all, Dr. Claude Smith, the city bacteriologist, says, I analyzed it and I tell you that I found blood corpuscles. And now you come in with the proposition that that blood had been there ever since that machinist Lee saw that fellow Duffy stand there with his finger cut and let it spout out at the end. A thing Duffy says never happened, and you know never happened, and we called on you to produce the paper this man Lee said he signed, and you can't do it. Because he never signed one. Not only that, but your own employee, your own witness, Mary Peerk, your own witness, Julia Puss, your own witness, Magnolia Kennedy, your own witness, Wade Campbell, and your own witness, Schiff and others, whose names are too numerous to take up your valuable time to mention, all say that they saw this great big spot there covered over with something white, which we know to have been Haskellene. Now, Harry Scott didn't manipulate exactly right. So they got them some new Richmonds and put them in the field. And this fellow Pierce. And where is Pierce? Echo answers where. And where, oh where, is Whitfield? And Echo answers where? The only man you bring in here is this man, McWorth. Starnes denies, Black denies, Scott denies, every witness put on the stand denies that around that scuttle hole, anything was seen immediately after that murder. Don't you know that Frank, who went through that factory, that Schiff, Darley, Holloway, don't you know that they would have been only too glad to have reported to Frank that blood spots had been found around that scuttle hole? And don't you know that Frank would have rushed to get his detective, Scott, to put the police in charge of the information that blood had been found here? But long after Jim Conley had been arrested, after this man Holloway had arrested him, after this man Holloway had said that Jim was his nigger, realizing the desperation of the situation, realizing that something had to be forthcoming to bolster up the charge that Conley did it. Then it was, and not until then, that this man McWorth, after he had gone looking through the factory for a whole day, at about 3.30 o'clock saw seven large stains, found the envelope and stick right there in the corner. Now, he found too much, didn't he? Wasn't that a little too much? Is there a man on this jury that believes that all these officers looking as they did there through that factory, going down in this basement there through that very scuttle hole, would have overlooked seven large stains which were not found there until May 15th? Scott said, I looked there just after the murder, made search at the scuttle hole, didn't see blood spots there. Starn says the same, Rosser says the same, and these men, Mel Stanford and Darley, both say they had been cleaning up all that very area May 3rd. And yet the men who cleaned up, and all these men, never saw them. And never even found the envelope or the stick. Why, it's just in keeping with that plant of the shirt at Newt Lee's house. I don't care how much you mix up this man black. Boots Rogers says, Darley says, that Sunday morning, when suspicion pointed towards this man Newt Lee, 
that this man, Frank, the brilliant Cornell graduate, and the man who was so capable at making figures that certain parts of his work have never been fixed since he left that factory, when he knew a girl had been murdered downstairs, when he knew that suspicion pointed towards Newt Lee, took that slip out of the clock and stood there, looked at it, told those men, in answer to a question, if Newt Lee would have had time to have left and gone home after he killed that girl and changed his clothing, that old Newt didn't have the time. Why did he say it then? Because he knew that Lanford and Black and the other detectives who were there would have examined that slip for themselves, then and there, and would have seen that these punches were regular or irregular. But he stood there, and because he knew he would be detected if he tried to palm off a fraud at that time and place, this man of keen perception, this man who is quick at figures, this Cornell graduate of high standing, looked over those figures which register the punches for simply 12 hours, not quite 12 hours, in that presence, surrounded by those men, told them that Newt Lee wouldn't have had the time. But, ah, Monday afternoon, when he sees that there isn't enough evidence against Newt Lee, and that the thing ain't working quite as nicely against this man Gant, who he told was familiar with this little girl, Mary Fagan. And then he suddenly proposes, after a conference with his astute counsel, Mr. Haas, that you go out to my house and make a search. And then, in the same breath and at the same time, he shrewdly and adroitly suggests to Black that Newt Lee, he has suddenly discovered, had time to go out to his house, and forthwith, early Tuesday morning, John Black, not having been there before because Leo M. Frank told him that Newt Lee didn't have time to go out to his house, but after the information comes in then, Tuesday morning, John Black puts out and goes to old Newt's house and finds a shirt. That's a plant, as sure as the envelope is a plant, as the stick is a plant, as the spots around the scuttle hole. And the man that did his job did it too well. He gets a shirt that has the odor of blood, but one that has none of the scent of the Negro Newt Lee in the armpit. He puts it not on one side, as any man moving a body would necessarily have done, but he smears it on both sides. And this carries with it, as you as honest men must know, unmistakable evidence of the fact that somebody planted that shirt sometime Monday, at whose instance and suggestion we don't know. And that club business. Dr. Harris says that that wound could not have been done with that club. And Dr. Hurt says it could not have been done with that club. And not a doctor of all the numerous doctors, good men and good doctors as they are for some purposes, ever denies it. A physical examination of that shirt shows you that it wasn't on the person when that blood got on it. There is as much blood on the inside or the underside that didn't come through to the outside. Lee didn't deny the shirt, but he never did say that it was his shirt. Cornered up as he was, not a Negro, one Negro in a thousand, that wouldn't have denied the ownership of that shirt, 
but old Lee was too honest to say that it wasn't his shirt. He didn't remember it. And you don't know whether it was his or not. Now this envelope and this stick is found at the radiator, at the scuttle hole, May 15th, after the place had been cleaned up, according to Darley and other witnesses, including Mel Stanford, and after, as I said, it had been thoroughly searched by Scott, Campbell, Rosser, Starnes, and I don't know how many others. And then you say that these things weren't a part and parcel of the same scheme that caused this man to have Conley write those notes planted by the body to draw attention away from him. You've been listening to our continuing audiobook series featuring the best writing from the American Mercury on the Leo Frank case. Be with us next time when we'll continue with the next installment of the American Mercury on Leo Frank.